what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. I am sitting here with my friend Terry, who I know from the cycling world and um, in another kind of very cool social media thing. Um, the reason we're sitting here is uh, an Instagram post. And so with that, uh, Terry, welcome and thanks for making the time. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. It's great. <laughs> sure. It's great to have you over. Sure. Um, uh, go yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say I'll just I posted something on Instagram. Our dishwasher broke, and I was frustrated by that. But then I realized it was a first world problem, and I needed to get some perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and and there's a soon to be released episode from another friend of mine on Instagram, and like in my mind, this is when social media actually works the best, and it's truly social, and it connects people in a positive way. And so, um, that's the whole reason I'm sitting here. So, I mean, if you wanted to go ahead and read that, I would be, you sure. know, yeah. Yeah. So I was really frustrated because it was a plastic piece that was a load bearing <laughs> part. So I just, when I'm frustrated, I try to channel that into something that's not just anger. So I wrote this Instagram post. I took a picture of the broken part <laughs> and then I put some verbiage in there, which you're not the only person who read that and found it sort of surprising to learn that I had a difficult childhood. Yeah. So I'm going to read what I, what I wrote on Instagram. I had a very difficult childhood filled with neglect, deprivation, intermittent homelessness, food insecurity, and the attendant shame that accompanies such a life. In many ways, it's amazing that I survived at all. It's astonishing that I emerged a relatively functional adult. <laughs> <laughs> Even more impressive that I earned a degree against all odds. I have such, so much gratitude for my life now, but I still remember the pain of that other life. Washing machines and automatic dishwashers were the realm of the wealthy, and I visited laundromats and hand-washed dishes well into adulthood. My home now is the first home I've lived in that has both. That little part on the lower right of the picture I posted is a load-bearing plastic guide from the top rack of my dishwasher. It failed, rendering the machine inoperable. As I plunged my winter-chapped hands into hot, soapy water to wash a full dishwasher load of dirty dishes, I remembered. I remembered to be grateful for my life now and to be proud of myself for achieving it against incredible odds. Hey, Whirlpool USA, hopefully they listen to <laughs> this podcast. They're my biggest sponsor, Terry. <laughs> Send me a new dishwasher. <laughs> and maybe don't make load-bearing parts out of plastic. <laughs> so... Thank you for sharing that. And then I, I just wanted to say when I read that, I just was struck by several things, like the, the gratitude that was in there, but also the courageousness to, or the courage to post something like that. And um, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to talk about your, your history and kind of, you know, dive into that, that would be, that, that's kind of why I'm sitting here. Sure. Yeah. And I know that, um, I need to just talk about that to provide context, but um, emerging from that is, uh, and the things I learned are just so powerful um, that I'm glad we're going to get to that. Um, some of the causes of my family's poverty growing up were larger cultural uh, situation at the time, like uh, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, uh, social services and like um, 
the availability of assistance from schools or teachers flagging kids who needed help or just knowing how to find resources was a lot harder. And especially growing up in rural Montana, Mm. so it's rural, uh, doesn't have the resources locally, and then all of a sudden you need gas money to travel. And then also not the social safety net that we have in place for kids today that catches a lot of kids who fell through the cracks, I think, when we were kids. Um, so there's that larger cultural piece. There's also, was at the time and still is, a huge amount of stigma about poverty. Um, so there's that. There's that reluctance to reach out or to um, you know, go out in public or to ask for help because there's a lot of shame in that because we believed uh, and a lot of people still believe that it's people who report it's their own fault for whatever reason. They're not smart enough, they don't work hard enough, or whatever. Um, in my case, uh, I think that it was two major factors. Um, one of them was religion. So I was raised in the... I, they just changed the name now. You can't call it Mormon anymore. The new president says to call it uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, which I will abbreviate it as LDS because that's a lot to say. <laughs> but most of us know it as Mormon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to be really sensitive just in case some of your listeners are Mormon or any of my family members happen to hear this or whatever. Um, there's a lot of good in that, uh, but there's also a lot of pressure to be perfect. And so one of the beliefs in that church um, is that the people who are favored of God are wealthier, more successful. The alternative is that the people who struggle, they must be doing something wrong, right? They must be sinning. God doesn't favor them. God doesn't love them as much. So that made my parents reluctant to reach out to family members and church members for help. And then um, there's a huge stigma in the church as well where we would hear, even though it's supposed to be secret or private or whatever, so-and-so had to go get help from the bishop to pay their rent, or so-and-so had to go get help from the bishop to feed their kids. And when people, when your society thinks that God doesn't love you, um, there's also a lot of shunning that goes along with that because they don't want to be tainted or associated with that. So it was really, we had to present this facade that we were okay when we were super not okay. Um, because we would have been shunned. And I mean, we ultimately might have gotten the help we needed, but the social cost of that was too great. Later on, um, my dad became an alcoholic on top of this. So it's like another level of intense shame for the church because they prohibit alcohol. Mm-hmm. So um, my family kept everything secret. So we weren't allowed to tell anybody my dad was drinking. We weren't allowed to tell anybody we didn't have an apartment and we were living in a camper on a pickup truck, you know, we weren't allowed to tell anybody we didn't have food that day or whatever it was. And we never went like without a meal necessarily, but we ate a lot of really inexpensive food. Like uh, we'd have pancakes three meals a day or we'd, you know, go without eggs for a week or whatever it was. Like it was like pretty piecemeal and pretty like not a lot of fruits and vegetables, not a lot of, not a lot of protein, not a lot of meat. Um, so I think those, like the two factors of alcoholism and religion really contributed. Um, and then my parents, uh, both were born in the 1940s. My dad in particular, his family is really rural in Utah. Hmm. So it's a really insular culture that he was raised in. Um, without a lot of contact, 
I don't want to say without a lot of contact with the outside world, but one of the things members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints say is we are in the world, but not of the world. So they really try to, at least at the time, separate themselves from the negative influences or what they see full of sinful, sinful influences of the external world. So there was kind of an inability to function in larger society to some degree, um, I think because of being isolated, and I think because um, just a general kind of ignorance, sort of, like, um, and a profound misunderstanding of power dynamics and social status. So I'm trying to think of how that would manifest. Like, my parents would never have questioned a person in authority, a doctor or a, a nurse, or, well, they might have questioned a nurse because in that day, nurses were often women. So they might have questioned that, because there's a lot of sexism that ties into this religion as well. Um, but that when they, like, they didn't want to ask for help, they were afraid of being shunned and shamed, and then they didn't have the tools to, like, f- even figure out who to ask for help from hmm. outside, you know, outside. So, yeah, the uh, absurd, kind of absurd, weird things resulted from that when I was growing up. Uh, I was just going to tell one story <laughs> because um, thinking about the neglect piece, that was an era of benevolent neglect where parents just sort of kicked kids outside. And so we were, uh, what we would do is we would, four of us and a cat would live in this camper on the back of this pickup truck. And we would, you could spend 14 days at a forest service campground before you had to like vacate the sites and go, and we would just rotate campgrounds. We'd spend our two weeks and then go somewhere else and spend our two weeks and go somewhere else. And uh, so we were at this campground on a lake one time and um, I have a brother who's a little bit younger. The culture of that religion is that men and boys are the leaders and women and girls are not. And they don't, they try to present it like they don't mean it to be sexist, but it results in this weird power dynamic where uh, this really strange hierarchy. So even though my brother was younger, um, my parents put all their hopes and dreams into him because he was the boy. He also had a, um, he's visually impaired, so uh, special needs. Again, didn't know how to get all the kinds of resources Mm. he needed for that either. He was misdiagnosed for a really long time. Um, A lot of tools available today were not available to him at that time. Uh, and also they didn't know how to reach out for that. So, uh, like, when a person in authority, like a teacher or a principal, would tell them that he was misbehaving in school, they believed that he was not, but they never pushed back and said, well, why is that? Why can't he see? Why, is he, why are his grades poor? What's going on? What can you guys do to help? They always sort of internalized that as, oh, this is something else that we can't get help with, can't talk about, can't whatever. And... Um, the result of kind of the sexism, too, and the part that he was treated a little bit with kid gloves because of the visual impairment, rightly so, he needed a little extra help, um, was that when I was in charge of babysitting him, I didn't have the authority that I needed to keep him safe. Because if I said something, whatever, please, you know, I'm sure I wasn't very kind about it. <laughs> Knock it off. Don't do that. <laughs> Looking back, I'm sure you I were a sister. I'm sure I didn't use a polite tone of voice. <laughs> but he would do whatever I had said not to do. So um, 
we would wake up before my parents and they needed us just to be outside so that they could continue sleeping or whatever. And this was well into the morning when, again, probably mental illness or depression or whatever kept them from rolling out the way most people would. Uh, so I remember one morning, um, my dad had walked up <laughs> to the outhouse and my mom was still in the camper and my brother was riding his bike outside and there was a group of tourists. I grew up in a tourist town. There's a group of tourists um, out on this dock on the lake and I'm telling my brother to slow down. I'm telling him to, he's not, he's not blind, but he's, his vision is pretty impaired. Um, so I'm telling him to slow down, to watch out. And he rides his bike onto this dock, where I, exactly where I told him not to go, towards the people. <laughs> and it's just this line of old people just part for him. And he rode his bike right off the end of the pier into the lake. <laughs> and my parents <laughs> were nowhere around. My dad's up shitting in the restroom. My mom's still asleep in the camper. And here I have to deal with this the emergency that and I don't how old were you? I was 10. Wow. And he was probably five. Um, so anyway, someone pulled him out. We dumped the water out of his cowboy boots and, you know, like he was okay. <laughs> but that kind of thing, like that lack of power. And then I got in trouble for not, you know, not in trouble, right. but I got like, why did I let him do that? Why had I let, and I tried to stop him, but I mean, I was 10. <laughs> so, so absurd things like that would, would hit, like preventable things like that would happen that looking back is kind of humorous but at the time it was incredibly stressful sure because it felt chaotic and out of control i grew up <clears throat> roman catholic ah. and um had a looking back uh i would say a, a similar um, perception of that and i know the church is getting just a crap ton of bad press, but I've been done with it for, for years and years and years. I got confirmed and they said that, you know, you're an adult in the eyes of the church. And my first adult decision was that, well, I'm not going to go anymore because I just, I had the mass memorized it in second grade. My wow. sister and I would come home and do that. And then I just saw the hypocrisy in it. And my grandmother went to church every single morning. She had, um, promised God that if her husband at the time survived this episode, they were on the way to the hospital. Turned out to be indigestion. Like he oh burped gosh. and he was fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. but Thank goodness. To her credit, she <laughs> kept her commitment, right? And so I remember praying the rosary when we were driving from Colorado to California every morning and just huge, huge fights about going to church and we wanted to watch the Broncos and it was just, you know, and she would always sit, you know, seat one A and one B so that everybody could see her. And there, you know, and I just remember like a lot of judgment coming from that. And if any place should be a place where people would reach out for help and understand and be compassionate and free of judgment, I would think a church of any denomination would be the place where that should happen. And it sucks that it didn't and still doesn't. Well, look at the social status piece of that, right? She's prominent. She's performing church in those seats. Performing. Right? That's a great totally. way. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's and totally. I'm not piling on on the dead here, but I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, there's just my perception of that. Right. Well, that's absolutely what we were doing with performing. 
Yeah. Like we'd show up at church having slept in campers and nobody knew. When my mom finally wanted to, um, it it got so bad and I, like the details are terrible, but um, so I'm not going to go into it because I'll start to cry, but it got so bad that my mom finally realized that she had to do something because it was so awful for all of us. Um, So she decided that she would seek help in Utah she, gave, she actually gave the kids a choice. We could go to California, to Los Angeles, and live with her mother, who was a challenging, not well, non-Mormon, but still not a well person. That would not have been a good situation. Or we could, have, we could go try to be with my dad's family and get help from them and kind of help them figure this out and get him to stop drinking and get back on our feet. But because we had kept it a secret for so long, nobody believed her. Mm. And, and then when it started to dawn on them that something was up, so there's a stigma now of separation, marital strife, right? That's another mark, poverty. Um, and when she sought help, she was counseled that um, she needed to return and just be a better wife. And the whole reason his life was falling apart was because she wasn't holding up her end of um, the, you know, the responsibility. <laughs> okay. Which echoes a later relationship I had in adulthood, right? I made that I made a choice to be with a guy like that, whose his whole life was a mess because of me. But I got out a lot faster. Well, you had said something earlier about um the perception of poverty, right? And that, you know, you need to work hard and it's not that. And um I know I've talked about this with my friends, but not probably ever on the podcast, is that um, within my adult life, within, within the last 10 years, I had gone through a divorce. And at one point I was, um, it's back when I was a full-time rep in the bike industry and was burning through my 401k to eat and to pay the mortgage. Um, at one point I was on food stamps and I'm a guy with a, a three, four GPA from a, a tech university and have a neurosurgical patent to my name. Right. So it's not a question of intelligence. It was just mm-hmm. circumstances and choices that I had made. But I still remember that when I had applied for food stamps, the kids were, um, under that umbrella. Right. Oh, good. And, but they didn't need it because their mom, who I have a great relationship with has followed a steady career track and you know she's been in her industry for well ever since I've known her so 25 years and my career path has taken the course of a butterfly where it's been (laughs) engineering (laughs) bike industry tech bike industry oh I want the bike industry to succeed for people (laughs) I really really do (laughs) but it's a hard industry it is it is and I found out that when uh, a person applies for food stamps that they also at certain levels, or maybe it's all across the board is that they also get qualified for the breakfast and reduced lunch mm-hmm. at school. And when that happens, there's a letter that goes out to the parents or the guardians. I don't know if it came from the school district or from the um, state, but I get a an, uh, call from my ex who again, great relationship with her going, Hey, what's going on? I got this letter that Elizabeth qualified for, you know, free reduced lunches. And it's like, 
So, you know, talk about feeling like about two inches tall. It's like, this was not a conversation that I had planned on having with her, but it's like, here it is. And so I was probably 35 at the time. And, (sighs) you know, I'd been in the point where the house was two months behind on the mortgage and, you know, my ex is in, and I was candid with her and yeah, there was, I don't think any judgment from her direction to me, but I had judgment upon myself. Oh man, the self criticism. Yeah, exactly. And, and I had written down some other things too. I had been, so I got another job. I got out of the bike industry and I was at Valero energy in San Antonio for this job that I just basically bullshitted my way into one of my favorite jobs I've ever had, but I had no experience, no cold call experience, (laughs) but I needed it. I needed this like nothing else. And I'm in a, uh, business suit. And the only thing that was mine that I had ever bought new at that point was the shoes and the belt and my socks and my underwear and the shirt, the tie was my dad's, but the shirt and the suit jacket and the suit pants, I had picked up at the Salvation Army here in Parker because nice. I had nothing that was um, presentable for business stuff. All the stuff I had was back when I was a, a hefty younger gentleman <laughs> that didn't fit. I was like, I can't <laughs> wear this. And I had no money. Right. And I think I actually wore a watch that had a dead battery. I didn't even have money to get the battery fixed in my watch. And I think I actually had, you know, I don't think anybody had pointed it out, but I just remember putting this on and going, I hope they don't notice that my watch says like you know, two Oh five when it's, you know, nine fifteen in the morning. <laughs> but I was like, so I, that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and that your post resonated is that I went through a lot of that as an adult and as a, supposedly smart, successful adult, you know? I think people generally who've never been through that experience don't understand the barriers. Like you're talking about, well, you had a great job. Did you have gas money to get there? Did you have five bucks at a time? I would fill five bucks at a time. Oh, I've totally done that. And you pay cash and yeah, no, totally give me five bucks. No. Yeah. We would, when we, we finally did go on food stamps on the DL so uh, what that looked like was we would go to the grocery store in rural Montana at like 9 o'clock at night because mm-hmm. we didn't want anybody to see us doing that. Just the, you know, and even then, like, it felt as if the cashiers and the other people in the store were still judging. When, and at the time, it wasn't like a card. Like, today, I think it looks like a credit card almost. Yeah, it's, I, like, it's a visa. I never even know. Like, and not that I care, but I would never. I'm just completely oblivious to the fact that maybe the person in front of me is using yeah. assistance. Um, but back then you had like, it looked like monopoly money, right? And uh, so what you would do, and it would only pay for food. It would not pay for paper goods like toilet paper. Right. Feminine <clears throat> hygiene products, things like that were not covered at that time. I don't know if they are now, Pro- probably not. I don't know. So what you would do is you would calculate the total in your head so that you could receive the maximum amount of coins back because the lowest denomination was a dollar. So if you got if you paid for something that was like something in five cents and you paid with two dollars, you would get that ninety-five cents back, and then you'd sort of scroll that away to buy things like soap and toothpaste and 
feminine hygiene and all of those things mm-hmm. that was that were not covered. And to me, I still have. I, I hoard toilet paper, like not literally, but I buy it in bulk. We always have like a dozen rolls in every bathroom. <laughs> We never give below four rolls per bathroom because I never, ever, ever <laughs> want to run out of that again. <laughs> I never want to find myself at the grocery store counting pennies out for a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, I remember being, um, <clears throat> this was recently, I remember being at the Sprouts over by the shop, mm-hmm. um, Parker and Arapaho, mm-hmm. and had again, doing kind of the running total in my head and something like that. And I had cashed out and I had exceeded the, the balance on the food stamps visa card. And, and it does show up. I think when you swipe, like it shows like uh, EBIT or something or okay. whatever they call it, like electronic benefits or something like that. And I just remember the cashier running and I, it was the one time that I didn't check the balance Oh man! and I thought it had been reloaded. And so I remember I'm like, Oh man. So it's like, I got to, you know, and it's like, this is what we needed to eat for the week. And so, um, I remember like, you know, like what do I put back? And I just remember pulling out a, a credit card that was like, like this was emergencies only. Like right. this was in case of, catastrophic something to the house and I charged it and I was like, and we're talking like $97 was what it was. And to me, that was like all the money in the world. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, and she just was like, the card was declined. She just was looking at it like, sorry, there's no money on it or not enough. And I was like, Oh, Oh, that's so God, that's so hard. Mm-hmm. I've had moments like that. That is so hard to yeah. like, and then you're and then that panic about, well, what, how do I fix this? What do I do? What do I, what do I put back? Right. What's unnecessary. Yeah. yeah. And we're not lazy people. We're not stupid people. We're not milking the system. We just had, you know, circumstances, you know, where you were raised and I had made professional decisions that didn't work out, but it's like, I was working two jobs at the time, maybe even three I was trying to sell bike stuff. I remember working four hours a day at this professional company. And then I think at the time I had got a a waiter job in Parker at an Italian restaurant, which I actually liked. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I was working, you know, I was up at 6 a.m. and probably till midnight. I was working, you know, 18 hours a day. And this is trying to keep the lights on. I put myself through college um, on like not really scholarships, but like Pell Grants and assistance and all of the little, you know, part-time tutoring jobs and whatever I could pick up on campus. Mm-hmm. And it took me 10 years to get a degree. Like, cause so I, cause I had to take breaks and go work full time and then come back to right. it or take breaks and go like save up money again and then come back. And then I was with the bad guy at the time and we moved around a lot. So that made it difficult to, um, piece together a degree quickly cause we kept, I kept changing schools. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm ever on a, a TED talk, you know, that's going to be one of the things that I'm going to relay is that I've been in like that Valero example. Like this is, you know, they're an energy company, right? They have gas stations. They've got all the money in the world. Right. And I was wearing clothes that totaled up to probably like $15 going in there. <laughs> no, 
I know. There's a, um, I haven't donated yet, but I just recently heard about a charitable organization called Modest Needs. And they fill the gaps that we're talking about. Like, you can't pay the power bill for that month and you just need 50 bucks to get there. Or you can't, um, you know, your, your car breaks down. The one car, the one shitty car that you have to get you to your job, the one thread of, of money that you have in all of the world and your car breaks down and you don't have $200 to fix it. This modest needs pays bills like that. I'll put a link to that in this episode. It sounds amazing. Yeah. 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 I had a shitty 2000, I'll say shitty, but, (laughs) um, that's again, that's judgment looking backwards. But at the time it was a, uh, five speed 2001 Subaru Outback that had, I think enough miles to, it went past the moon. Like it had maybe 200,000 some miles on it. And at one point, um, the check engine light came on and I took it over to that Subaru, Subaru place right by you guys. And he's like, yeah, dude, you've got a three cylinder engine, like the, the valve or the, <laughs> the cylinder or something was toast and, and, you know, all due credit to Subaru is like that thing still went up by 70 with bikes on the roof, like in third year at 75 That's miles awesome. an hour. But I was like, and I finally got rid of that because I was coming up on the inspection and oh, yeah. I couldn't renew the plates because the emissions wouldn't pass or they wouldn't test it with the check engine light on. Sure. And then I'm scrambling and, you know, it's like. My, uh, my dad was an alcoholic till, and impoverished until his death. Um, I remember he came out to... How old was he when he died? 65. My mom died. Okay. My mom died young. She died at 46. Oh, wow. I was 16 at the time. Again, uh, no access to resources. She had untreated hypertension. Um, she, neither one of them had seen a doctor in years and years and years. So uh, I think part of that was, was the money, like... They just couldn't afford to go to the doctor. And I'm sure we had no insurance or maybe very marginal insurance. Um, but even just whatever the copay was, was way too much. So like I didn't go to the eye doctor. My grandmother took us to the eye doctor when I think I was like eight was the first time I'd ever had my vision checked. Hmm. So, um, but anyway, so when she, she had a ruptured brain aneurysm and uh, died uh, that same day, and then my dad came out, um, when I was an adult living in Wyoming, he came out to visit in this Ford Ranger pickup truck that he, he was an auto mechanic and he was really, he was really, really good with, at that. Um, and so he put together this, you know, he bought this, um, great deal of a truck off of somebody and, you know, fixed it all up or whatever. And he drove it out and the engine seized on the interstate in Wyoming, which is oh, not geez. a good place to <clears throat> like between Rollins and Laramie or something. Terrible like I know that. where that is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of hours and nothing. <laughs> so some nice people helped him get it towed into town, and um, the cost to repair it was like twenty three hundred dollars, and that was way more than the value of that truck. Mm. And he asked us to to cover the cost for him, and I had already purchased another. He had another car. He had a Ford Bronco at home that I had paid for and, and given to him. And uh, I was like, I don't know, man, you've got the Bronco, and I don't want like, to... And that's a lot of money. It is 2300 is a lot of money to me right now. Like, oh, yeah. That yeah. is a ton of money, especially for something that's not um, that valuable. Like, it was just a lot for something. 
And not that we couldn't have, you know, piecemealed it together or figured out on like a little bit on a credit card, a little bit out of savings, a little bit of whatever at the time. Um, we had to say no. And that was really, really hard. But I was like, Dad, I'll get you home. I'll buy you a plane ticket. I'll whatever it is. But you have I know that you have another vehicle that works. And mm. that's a huge burden to us to pay for that. And it was just so like it was just so hard. And then so we um sold it for scrap. And I remember the scrapyard paid us like $150 for it. And I, I told my dad it was like 300 and just sent him 300 bucks. Cause I was like, this dude needs money, yeah. <laughs> you know, and just, but those little, like what would be not a big deal for a lot of people is like, it just stops your life in its tracks for, for people who are poor. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you had mentioned the, the food scarcity and I was, I spent a lot of time get meditating and trying to think about uh, my goals in my life. And I notice that it, some portions I have like portion control issues and it's like going out to dinner anywhere, right? You're going to get a, a, a plate the size of this laptop full of stuff. Right. So part of it is American dining, right? <clears throat> but another part of it is the fact that I remember those days of barren cupboards and empty fridges. And it took me a while to realize with a steady job and a great paycheck that, you know what, like every two weeks, like Friday, Saturday, like I just go out and it's like, Hey, I'm buying a, I'm going to Starbucks and I'm going to lunch. Hey kids, let's go out to dinner. And it was because I could, yeah. And it feels so indulgent. It does. And I just remember sitting there going and just, you know, packing away the food. And I was like, <laughs> why am I doing this to myself? You know? And I, I literally had sat down and meditated for a week on this. And it was, um, a guided meditation on, um, like healthy eat. I forget there's a, a different title to it. It doesn't matter, but <clears throat> just thinking about, the relationship with food. And I just remember being, you know what? I think I feel empty mentally about that more than ever being hungry. Right. Sure. And I just remember going, Oh, it was traced back to, um, it, it, I think for me, it always lands on fear. Like, what am I afraid of? But I remember thinking, okay, I got paid. I can go out to eat. And this is less about me being hungry and satisfying a need, which, you know, 200 calories, like a, a banana and some peanut butter would have solved the problem. But no, I'm going to go out for a, you know, lunch. I'm going to get the soup and all this. And I was like, I was afraid. I had been literally, you know, just watching every penny. And I was like, oh, that's where it came from. I still do that. I still like I'm better about it, but uh, we're pretty careful with money. And my husband has a better perspective on it than I do. And part of it is that I don't work. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Hmm. So it's we're a one-income family, and it's we're fine. But um, anytime we talk about a big purchase, I really go through, like, okay, well, what does this mean? What is it going to impact? And even when it's not such a big deal. And so uh, it can be really hard to give yourself permission. Yeah. I stayed home with the kids for three years, too. It was yeah. the, the best time of my life. I love it. Growing up Mormon, that's what you're supposed to do. And I never, ever thought 
I would want to do that because there was so much pressure to be a mom and have kids and stay home and cook and bake and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's so fascinating to me that like I circle back to it for reasons of my own. And because it's my own decision, I find it so rewarding and I feel so lucky to be able to do it. And even though my kids are old enough, um, it's just so nice to, to do that, to be yeah. here for them. There's something really special about, and I've actually heard it from other parents that at this age, uh, how old are your kids? 15 and nine. Yeah. I think at this age, it's more important. I mean, you have that bonding and it's the, the diapers and the feeding and all that stuff when they're super young. But right. at this point, um, that's what I've told my kids. Like you're the, the impact of a wrong decision, the older you get starts increasing. And so if you're home hanging out with them and talking about things like the, the minute they get home from school, if something went wrong or there was a, a problem, you're right then and there and not fighting the commute, coming home, trying to fix dinner. Like you're more present when it maybe even matters more. I think that the, what I notice about, um, families who both work and their kids are active, like we limit the number of activities they do too, because we all seem to function better, particularly me when there's less chaos. So, um, <laughs> welcome to my world too. Our, it's so much more <laughs> relaxed. Like if I, if they come home and the laundry fairy has washed their clothes and dinner's on the stove and we can just sit down and chill and talk about dinner and work on homework together, whatever, talk about their day and not, you know, not that frantic feeling of, Oh my God, what am I going to feed everybody in the, you know, how am I going to find time for this? And there's a pile of laundry and there's whatever it is. Like it's pretty, it's pretty chill to be able to do that. And I think we all benefit. That's one of the things I noticed that first month I stayed home. So the kids were two and and maybe seven, I think, somewhere in that range, maybe three and eight, somewhere there, maybe even younger. But um, I remember the weekends being jam-packed, like more chaotic than going to work because, all right, children's museum, the zoo, then the park, and let's go see a movie, and let's do this. And then when it was like a random Tuesday, I'd walk Nick to school and... Elizabeth and I would just sit at the playground and just hang out. Yeah, that was so And nice. there was no pressure. I remember just hanging out on the patio and we would read a book or play with bubbles or something or and everything just slowed down. And it just and what was really important came to the surface. I think it gives you the ability to give them your full attention in a way that yeah. if you're not pulled in a million different directions, you can't you can't do that. And my son now, um, He's in high school, and he he sees uh, kids whose parents aren't present for a variety of reasons through sometimes no fault of their own. Just yeah. like, again, like maybe they're working three jobs or maybe they're whatever. And he so appreciates the fact that at least one of us and often both of us are there for every concert, every event, every honors award, every, like, all the time. And um, he had an upsetting event that, during a lockdown at school this week that I think the school or the district, I'm not sure who ultimately was responsible, but I think they could have handled the communication piece better. Mm. And so I kind of talked through that with him and I wrote a letter to the superintendent, the head of security, the principal of his school, just saying, Hey, you know, here's, here's my son's experience. Here's how we think you could do it better next time. Hopefully you don't ever have to do this again. Um, but I think it was really helpful that we could just stop what we were doing, talk it through, 
figure out some kind of, not a solution, but a, a way to process through it that had his voice heard. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been really hard. Those kinds of things are really hard when both parents work. Yeah, right. And the the bullshit tends to rise to the surface, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, and it's not important. And what I've always told the kids, and it, it took my son <clears throat> when he was in maybe eighth or ninth grade a while to believe this. Like, I'm not the police. I'm not here to catch you. I am here... To trust me on this. So it took probably six months of space repetition where I was just like, dude, I'm here to help you. Okay. Like, let's talk about this stuff. That's and, a hard age though. Yeah. And he'll admit. And I think on the, the second episode that, you know, I'm pushing out tonight of his that, you know, he, he'll admit that <laughs> he was a little fussy. That 12, 13, <clears throat> man, that was the hardest age for us. So for my daughter is younger, so I'm, yeah. I'm bracing for <laughs> through that. But from my perspective, though, I didn't engage with that, right? And the only rule I had, I said, you can have a miserable day. You can be upset. It's okay if you want to spend time in your room. You cannot take out that on anybody else. Mm -hmm. You can just say, I feel like shit, and that's fine. And just, I want to be left alone. Totally cool. You know, and if you want to talk about it, great. If you don't, that's fine, too. But you just can't be, you know, an asshole, and expect to get away with it. You just have to own that little piece of it and, and be fine. And, and just, just ask for the space. Yeah. 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 And the rest, everyone else will respect that. Right. Yeah. Because I feel that way. And that was part of the thing. I was like, man, there's sometimes, <laughs> yeah. I can't stand you kids. I'll say that. I'll be like, <laughs> and they haven't even done anything. I'll be like, you guys, I just need a minute. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I love you, but I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Time out. <laughs> I made a flow chart I'll show you later of uh, the kids were fighting. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Have and you I, seen that? Yeah, I want to make sure I post that because that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. My kids were my kids were arguing one morning and I just got so frustrated with it and they just couldn't get their shit together. And um, so <laughs> after I got everyone to school, I came home and I made this rinky-dink little cut and paste um, flow chart about how to speak to each other in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, I must say, perfectly aligned and justified. When you say rinky-dink, you are way underselling this, Terry, because it is not. <laughs> I, I've had like four or five people ask for copies of it for their houses. <laughs> the arrows are straight. I don't know if you used a ruler or if that was tape. I used a but... ruler. I used my daughter's markers. And then I accidentally, what, what happens when you use a plastic, when you use a plastic ruler with a marker, I didn't realize this at the time is uh, the first color that you use leaves that color's residue on the plastic. So some mm. of the lines have two colors for the next color because I had like red, yellow, and uh, green colors. I didn't notice that. Well, some of the yellow is a little green from, from using that same spot on the plastic. <laughs> <laughs> it was cathartic, though. It was really a good um, therapeutic experience, just like the physical act of cutting and pasting and typing. And I like to write. I've written in public before, too, and... Um, so for me, expressing myself in writing is a lot easier. And mm. that was just a fun, that was a fun project. Well, kids aren't stupid. I, they're ignorant. They're, unex, they're, they're unaware and they're, they're not exposed. And so as a parent, you have a choice to either punish and the kid may or may not get why they're being punished. Or you can be a leader and a coach and a guide and say, here's a different path you can take for whatever it is. And so your flowchart demonstrated that. 
Right. And so that's what I, that's just, that was brilliant. So I, <laughs> as I was trolling your Facebook feed, looking for the post that was actually on Instagram. <laughs> it's usually both places. I usually, I prefer Instagram. I saw that, but I was like, Oh, I wanted to talk to her about the flow chart. So I actually have it written down right here. So I'm so glad that you did. That's awesome. I parent <laughs> so differently. Like the way my parents would have handled that situation is wildly different. Mm-hmm. They would have just kicked us outside and let us like beat each other up or what, you know what, not literally, but although there was some hitting, but uh, they would not have been a guiding influence in a situation like that. So yeah. I try really hard to be a thoughtful parent. And more than anything else, I really try to be respectful because growing up, I did not receive respect from my family mm. as a girl. Um, my dad told me a number of times in all seriousness that um, he felt like my intelligence was wasted on me because I was a girl and it should have gone to my brother and I had all the luck and it shouldn't have gone, it should have gone to my brother because he was the one who was supposed to go to college and be successful and all of that. Um, How old were you when you heard that? Oh, starting young, like when I got good grades in school, uh, like in first grade, I got, um, I was bored and my teacher was, uh, again, this was like, 70s so my teacher was um very old at that time so she had been raised in a different era of teaching and so she Mm -hmm. read my boredom as mental retardation like those are the words she used and so she told my parents she thought I was retarded and that I needed you know whatever a home or I don't know what she thought I needed but um I don't know what they did in those days so I got I got testing and I remember those two days um when my parents were like, well, this is what, you know, huh? You know, they didn't know what to think because here's this person in authority saying there's something wrong with your kid. You don't question people in authority. So they just kind of like they did all the testing. The testing came back and I was reading at like a fourth grade level and my math was at like a sixth grade level. And they pushed my parents then to have me skip grades, but I was already at the young end of the spectrum. Yeah. So we I was too. I was the youngest in my class. Yeah. So we didn't, but just like, um, after that, knowing that I was then identified as uh, gifted or whatever they, the terms they used at that time, um, my dad would then say things like, you know, it's too bad you're the smart one. And, you know, just because his culture and his mindset was all I was destined for was having children and staying at home. And so I didn't deserve intelligence or respect or because I was just a girl. I, looking back, I think it had to do with um, probably some of his own insecurities about himself. He never finished high school. He and my brother both dropped out of high school. Mm. So that was probably part of it. And the shame from that. And then here I was, like, what the hell was I, uppity 10-year-old doing? <laughs> <You know? clears throat> so, yeah. So I tried to parent very respectfully and like uh, pretty gently. I try to choose, if I have a, not a criticism, but if I have a suggestion, I'll try to say it in a way that's, well, have you thought about this? Or what if you tried that? Not, holy shit, you're doing that wrong. What the fuck is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. You know, um, which were not words my parents used because we didn't swear. Um, but that was very much the attitude 
Like any little mistake, what the fuck is wrong with you? What are you doing? Da, 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 da. And I had no um, guidance. Wow. I think culturally, a lot of people are raising their kids differently now too. So that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you start working your way out of that? Um, so I was thinking about this because I don't have any like... What all of this, I just want to brief, I'm going to briefly describe what this resulted in in young adulthood. You don't have to be brief. (laughs) Trust me, all the time you need. Um, The result is that I emerged into adulthood, um, you know, with, in a very bad abusive relationship, not physically abusive, but intensely emotionally abusive. And, um, you know, making poor choices. I didn't really know how to function in the world because I hadn't ever, but like everything was by the seat of my pants. I didn't know how to go to college. I didn't know, like, I knew you had to show up for classes. I didn't, at the time they didn't, now they have these whole programs that, like, orient kids. Not then, man. I just got flung out into the, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Like, here here you go. Here's your classes. um, So that was really hard. Like, I missed a final because I didn't understand that it wasn't um, at the same time as class time. Like, just really basic, super basic things like that that I just had no exposure to. Um, the first time I opened a bank account, I had no idea. And I was terrified because here was this man, older man in power over me. And I misread the um, power dynamic at the time. I felt like I was a beggar begging him to let me put my 200 bucks into his, you know, or whatever it was, just because I had been raised to believe those things. And so I, I think I believe the narrative. I believe I didn't deserve to be smart. I didn't deserve to be respected. I didn't deserve um, to have self-confidence. And I felt like, um, I always felt like I was passing in a, in a world I didn't deserve to be, I wasn't worthy to be in. So um, I don't think any one particular thing, it was a long process. Um, there's like a totality of smaller things. So I had teachers in high school who appreciated how smart I was and really reinforced that with me and told me it was a good thing and um, asked my opinion about things and seemed to take that in. Even if I was wrong, they would um, treat it seriously, which was the first time anyone in a position of authority had ever treated me like that with respect, uh, as a peer, as someone with a valuable, something valuable to contribute. So that, so little moments like that started to chip away at the false narrative I had about who I was supposed to be. Um, college professors, same thing. Employers, like all of these people that I had learned to be fearful of were not monsters. We were peers. We were equals. So all of that. Um, and then, like, even when I met Sven, we've been married since 2000. He's a really good guy. Um, at the time, I could, like, it took me a few years of waiting, a few years into our marriage of waiting for him just to come to his senses and be like, oh, I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Terry, you're not. <laughs> wait a minute. You know, I just kept fearing that he would see me for who I really was and be like, oh, wait a second. I'm, <laughs> this is not. And it took a lot of years to get over that, but just having his ongoing support and, um, treating me respectfully and being a good guy. Um, and then, you know, uh, anthropology degree was really helpful because 
Um, it took me 10 years to get it. <laughs> so I was, it was a deep dive. And I would do um, reading in between when I was out of school working. I would still try to keep up on the literature, you know, just try to keep fresh. So that was really helpful. Um, but what that did was it exposed me to a lot of different successful ways of being a human in the world because other cultures did things completely differently and they had really functional, successful people. And I didn't have to be perfect in this like narrow paradigm I'd been raised in because I was fucking it up all along anyway. Um, so realizing that there were other ways to be that were legit was really, really helpful. Um, and then also understanding... Um, Things like social status and money and power are all cultural contexts. We all agree that money means something. Right. We all agree that a person has power. And then, and I started to um, think about how, not that it's artificial, because it, it influences how we behave, but understanding that it's not permanent, it's not written in stone, it's not uh, a naturalistic law that just, like, gravity... Um, it's something we've created as a society. So I don't have to be fearful of people in power or people who have more money or um, whatever it is that I was, people in authority. Because the reason they're in authority is we've all agreed that they have authority. And there's a difference between, <laughs> there's a, like I was thinking about this in the context of like a doctor. Um, there's a difference between having respect for someone's, education and agree and opinion based on that and um, respect for them as a person. Like you can sort of separate the two. So just because a doctor has all of these things, I can take what they say based on that education, but maybe their political opinion is idiotic and I don't agree with it. Or maybe they're, maybe they abuse their spouse or maybe they, whatever. Um, and realizing that I could, I could choose I could choose to take bits and pieces of what worked for me uh, was really powerful too. So um, I wanted to talk about cycling for a minute because cycling is a big piece of this too. So uh, when we moved here in 2011, I had a surly cross check. <laughs> Great bike. That was too big. <laughs> and it's so fucking heavy. <laughs> it's the heaviest. <laughs> So there I was stretched over the top tube. I came from, uh, I'd worked in bike shops in college and I had, I've always been a casual rider. Uh, I had a cargo bike that I hauled kids around on like a couple miles to school and stuff or groceries or whatever. So we moved here and I've got a mountain bike and I bought the Surly Crosscheck because I was like, people here ride drop bar bikes. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> So I tried, so I talked to somebody who said that was a good transitional bike coming from like more of a flat bar mountain bike too. And I didn't, not that I wanted to keep up with anybody, but I'd be out tooling around on my mountain bike and these really scary groups of these dudes, these really fast dudes on drop bar bikes would whip past me, super close, scared the crap out of me, didn't say anything. And I was like, what is going on? How do you, you know, how do you ride a bike here? Because there's so many people mm. in Lycra you know, riding really fast. I didn't know how to navigate in that at all. So I got this, this cross check. I rode it around slow as hell. <laughs> and then um, I needed something like gloves or a tube or something. And I landed at Adventure Cycling at Eric's shop. And um, he invited me on the group ride. And I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> and uh, 
I like, it took me probably two or three months of like, uh, stalking their Facebook page and looking to see if the people looked nice. And, you know, and he, he kept reassuring me, we're not going to leave you behind. Cause that was my other fear is I'd go out with these guys and get dropped somewhere in the middle of nowhere and not be able to get myself back. Or what if I got a flat or, you know, I didn't know how to do any of that. So, um, I went on the first group ride with the cross check and it was so fun. It was so fun because it was terrifying because I didn't know anything. I didn't know hand signals. I didn't know from anything about how to write in a group. But everyone was very patient and respectful. Nobody was an asshole about it. Nobody acted impatient that I was slow. Nobody acted like an asshole when I rolled up last at the stoplight. So it was really like the culture of that group ride. I really appreciate that because I've been on other group rides that are not like that. The men always fuck it up for everybody. It's not. You know, so I'm going to be sexist. I love writing with guys. I love it because it's not all guys. There's a few. There's one guy on my do not ride list who I will not ride with. But I ride with hundreds and hundreds of people every year. And um, yeah, guys are are great because it's just, I don't know how it changes when I'm not there. So I don't have the perspective. But when I'm the only girl in the group... Almost always, everyone's super chill. I mean, we can go fast and we can haul ass and we can chase each other and race and stuff. But at the end, when we all regroup, if I've gotten dropped or not or whatever, everybody's high-fiving each other and everybody's mm-hmm. being really supportive. And not one time I've seen two guys get into an argument over something that happened. Somebody bumped an elbow. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> but I started writing with Eric and... Um, and uh, having a really good time. And then he started having me come out on my cross-check still. That was too big. Um, he and Pipo Capraro and Frank Scavuzzo and a few other people would do this Wednesday morning, 6 a.m. thing in the Cherry Creek Park. Mm. And that's where I learned how to draft. And that's where I learned how to um, you know, ride super close and be safe in a, in a tight group and how to echelon and all that kind of stuff. And we would haul ass for an hour. And uh, again, everyone was so nice. And we were just trying to get a good workout in. But like, um, just learning that stuff in a safe environment was really helpful. And to help me gain confidence and feel competent and stuff. And I still wasn't super fast on the cross check. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, Eric asked me to help lead the shop rides. And uh, that was a real confidence booster because I was like, really? Um, but I've been doing that for years now and I love it. We go out every Saturday and I'm there most of those Saturdays. And then we do what's called fight club that I can't really talk about. (laughs) But First rule prevents me from discussing fight club. Understood. Too much. (laughs) I know what the first rule is. Uh, but it's a really, um, it's a really great, the fight, the fight club is my favorite ride now because it's really, really fast. And, um, but really safe. It's not guys who, I find the sketchy guys are the guys who have something to prove. The faster riders, the stronger riders relax into it and they're not squirrely the way that guys who are at their maximum trying not to get passed by me or whatever it is. Um, they, they're, they tend to swerve around and be a little unsteady, but the fastest guys are, are, uh, super solid. So fight club is awesome. Um, but I can't. 
say too much about it. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> so all those things have led me to now, you know, I'm a stay home mom and I'm just a bike bum and it's great. My life right now is awesome. You're a fantastic ride leader, by Thank the way. You. It's, I think, um, even outside of this episode, just your care and guidance on that ride makes it, you set the tone for the mentality on that ride. And it's really fun. And there's people that are, you know, the $8,000 bike down to people that are on just where your journey was, where my journey started as well with adventure on a bike that's probably given to them too big, too small, out of shape. And everybody feels welcome. And it's just, and I think a lot of that, and I, uh, again, I'm not uh, an anthropologist, but I study humans and behaviors and stuff like that casually. And you definitely set the tone for that. Good. I try really hard to make it inclusive and I've worked really hard to have more women come. I love it when I'm the only woman because then I'm the special snowflake, right? I'm the, <laughs> the prettiest girl in the room at that point. That's awesome. <laughs> But um, I do actually like it when other <laughs> women come too. <laughs> but it's hard. To you know, I'm gonna have to use that at some point. Pretty girl. Right. I'll say that. I'll say that after Fight Club. I'll look around. Right like, Damn, I was the fastest girl here. <laughs> after being laughed by tattoos, you guys. I was, did you see me? I was the fastest girl here. <laughs> um, yeah, I work really hard. I think everybody works really hard. We have a lot of, we have a solid group of regulars who come mm-hmm. and um, we'll just sort of take turns sweeping if there's slower people on the ride. So um, s- nobody ever gets left behind. Yeah. And I, I think that's really important. I think um, it's really important too. What was pivotal for me and I think what I try to replicate for other women who come in particular is you can feel really, really vulnerable and having stronger riders having those cat two men or whatever it is say, Hey, awesome job. Good job. Way to keep up, you know, is really um, helpful for building confidence. Cause a lot of people are faster than they think they are. They just don't know how to draft or they don't know how mm-hmm. to tuck in or whatever, or to pace it. If it's a new route that you don't know how to spend your energy on. So I think that's really good. And we try really hard to be safe on that ride too. Um, one thing that was powerful for me a few years ago is I read this article about a mountain bike racer, and she talked about learning to stop apologizing when she made men wait, because we're socialized not to be inconvenient for men, right? To like I've wondered where that comes from, and I've t- talked to this about this with other female friends of mine. I was like, don't apologize for something that's not your fault. It's so hard to unlearn that. It is really, really hard to unlearn that. What I started doing, though, was shifting it in my head. And what completely changes the tone is if I'm the last one rolling up, first of all, the guys I ride with don't act impatient when they're waiting. They're very polite and courteous. And they don't act like they're not checking their watches. They're not tapping their feet. Um, So they're always really chill when I roll up. And I started saying, hey, guys, thanks for waiting. Give me a minute to get a drink and we can roll out. Right. That is so much better than, oh my God, I'm so sorry. How long have you guys been here? I feel so bad. That's not what to do because then that totally changes the tone. And then they're like, yeah, you know what? I have been here for a while. What took you so long? (laughs) 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 So um, 
shifting my thinking about the apologizing and saying thank you instead has been really, really powerful. And if I hear other women on my shop ride, I've called women out on it. When they roll up and say, I'm sorry, I say, don't apologize. Thank us for waiting. Mm-hmm. When I was a cycling coach, and I guess I still am and always will be, that's something I'll say to anybody, men or women, and like, don't apologize. And I'll give them one free pass if they ever start uh, disparaging their own ability. I hate that and too. And it's like, all right, I'm putting you on notice that you are now forbidden to talk about your performance because you are working on it. You're here, you're trying to get better. And we all started there. I tend to be, um, like we talked about the self-critical piece. One thing that Fight Club is really good for me is I get dropped every time, every single time. But we're riding in a circle, and Mm -hmm. I catch up again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm off the front for like 20 minutes, and then then I'm off the back again. Um, But just mentally being comfortable with being in that space, being alone in the wind. And often what happens is, so what Fight Club is, is... Are you sure? You just... (laughs) It's hard because I want to draw more writers to it, but it's the perfect size to be safe. And I'm worried that if too many people start coming, too many of those guys who ride Meridian Tuesday, Thursday, it's not going to be the same. Well, let's leave it obscure. So uh, we just ride fast in a circle for an hour, as fast as... It's it's first lap's a warm-up, and then it's full gas. And... um, at the end, we regroup, and everybody is so... Like, the guys fight it out really, really hard. And I've had one, in all the years I've been doing that, what my friend, my friend Anne showed up one night. She's a pro racer. She's the only woman I've ever seen who could keep up with those cat two mm. men, which was so cool. It was so cool to watch her ride with them. Um, and we regroup at the end and everybody's like high-fiving and we've had a really good time and it's been safe and it's been fast and it's been really fun and somebody won at the end, the sprint at the end and somebody won the sprint over there but there's no hard feelings about who did that that yeah. night and I love that. And if somebody, um, you know, made a mistake in the Peloton or did, you know, whatever, had a moment of inattention, they'll call it out in the moment but then it's over. It's not like everybody's still pissed off afterwards mm-hmm. about it. Somebody touches tires or whatever. So I love that attitude. And my favorite thing in cycling, I mean, there's a lot of favorite things, but one of the things I love is um, being out the front of a, like, I did this a few weeks ago on the Saturday ride. For whatever reason, I was the only woman there. And um, I was off the front, and there's like 45 guys behind me. And I, little old me. Tip of the spear. <laughs> tip of the spear. And in charge. That's my fucking ride, man. I'm there. I'm the boss of that ride. It was so, it's so cool. I love that. I wanted to circle back to two things. And I, I love hearing your cycling stories because I started the same way. But <clears throat> you'd mentioned a woman showing up on the group ride and feeling vulnerable. And I think the difference is that a man <clears throat> would probably not express that I, or even maybe not even be aware that that's happening. And um, that's unfortunate because in a, a safe space like that, anybody should be able to express those, um, 
those vulnerabilities or those concerns. And I think a woman would be more tending to express it, which ultimately is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of knowing where your limit is at the moment and wanting to approach it and push through it, but being aware and thoughtful about it and saying something about it. Whereas a guy might not even be like, Oh, I'll just fucking figure it out. Right. Right. And that's where a lot of, not just on a group ride, but I think in a lot of facets of life, somebody would get into trouble. Yeah. Trying to, especially in a situation that you're unfamiliar with, trying to fake it can be hard Yeah, and unsafe. Um, it's not that women express it. It's just that I know, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, not every woman who comes is vulnerable or feels vulnerable, but I can, I can sort of read the body language a little bit. Like if they look nervous or scared or whatever. And so here they are in a group of strangers on a bike going fast and physically I'm mostly over it now, but when I first started riding in a group, there was something about, especially bigger guys on bikes right next to me that felt so intimidating. Like, I'm a lot smaller than a lot of the guys I ride bikes with. I'm smaller than you. I'm smaller than Eric. Um, And the size disparity at first freaked me out because I was like, oh, it's like being next to a semi-truck in your little tiny car or whatever, you know. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. I think there's that. And, oh, I know what I was going to say. There's the physical disparity piece because most Mm -hmm. women are smaller than most men. Um, There's the, you don't know the route. If you haven't been on a ride before, you've maybe been dropped from another yeah. group ride. You may have had a boyfriend. We almost every woman I've ever talked to has been with a guy. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> I could go on for hours about wrecked. that. We, we, we get wrecked though. Like I dated a climber <clears throat> and a rock climber. I had this misspent moment. And um the first time I went climbing with him, like I had never been climbing before. He and his buddy dragged me along on this super hard route. I didn't know how to tie in. I didn't know. And then they were frustrated with how slow I was, shitting to me because I didn't know anything and didn't take the time to teach me. Like it was not a teaching moment. It was throw you into the fire. And I think a lot of women have had that when their partner is accomplished at a sport or experienced at a sport or whatever. Yeah, they don't take them back to day zero. They take them back to year five and go, hey, I love this. I want to like... Blah, right? Right. Why can't you keep up? <laughs> and the, the it's back to that piece about, especially if there's one or two women on the ride, sometimes we're slower. Like, literally, not because we're weak, just whatever. Don't have yeah. the $8,000 bike. Don't have the lung capacity. Don't have the legs that day. There's a headwind. Didn't eat breakfast. Like, any number of factors on any given day means that experienced guys on fancy bikes might be faster that day than a woman. And... Uh, I think coming into that, and and also, um, I hope this is not true of younger women, but, and my daughter is not, my son and daughter are not learning this negative message, but uh, in the don't don't inconvenience men piece of socialization was also um, men are dangerous. Mm. So some of us bring a little bit of that concern to the table too. So I try to be really inclusive and encouraging and I've gotten a couple of girlfriends to come to Fight Club, which is a blast. It's so fun. I wanted to go back to something you had said about um, your first few years with uh, your husband. And my philosophy as a father to a daughter, and I don't know where I heard it, but 
women tend to marry their fathers. Mm. And so I've always, I've got flaws. I've got things I'm constantly working on, but I have always tried to keep that in mind. And when you were talking about the, your first relationship, uh, it takes me back many, many years to a relationship I had that was very powerful and meaning to me. And without getting into particulars, I had pointed out that she had married a clone of her father. So with alcohol, with, I don't know if there was physical abuse, but there was mental abuse. Mm -hmm. And I just told her, look, it wasn't your fault. You grow up in a home and whether you're in Parker or Montana or Europe or Africa, South America, as a child, that is your world and your, that's your pattern matching, right? And I just told her that you felt familiar with this guy and it's no fault of your own. You just pattern matched, even though it was fucked up beyond belief you knew what was going to happen. It's the devil, you know? Yeah. And I just said, look, it's not your fault. You know, what you're putting up with and what's happening to you, it's not your fault. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's hard to, it's hard to come to that realization too, because you can look back on mistakes or things you should have done differently. Ultimately, like even as much frustration and, um, anger that I still have about the way I was raised, I do have a realization that my parents are the product of their environment. Yeah. And to some degree, that wasn't their fault. Yeah. Yeah. So we're raising our kids better. (laughs) (laughs) We're screwing them up in different ways. (laughs) Like when I wear the gorilla suit to school. (laughs) We, We joke that we have orthodontic savings account, Therapy savings account and college savings account at our house. (laughs) Maybe not necessarily in that order. (laughs) Well, Terry, this has been just uh, an amazing surprise. I mean, from just getting to know you on the bike and then your post and this, this conversation, like in part of this, I was sharing and then part of it that you were uh, relating to me was just fascinating. And so it was just it was a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's so fun. And so nice of you to come and just let me ramble. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, uh, and I mean this in the highest compliment, just a girl, Terry, just me. (laughs) (laughs) That maybe that's the clothing line that will start just a girl. And yeah, because let's, let's de-weaponize that and make it something very, very powerful. Because if you're just a girl, that's, all you need that's all you need to take over the world i love the current campaigns from nike and whatnot Mm -hmm. do it like a girl just like a girl yeah i hashtag a lot of my instagram uh ride like a girl yeah thank you so much thanks man (laughs) oh that was fun this was awesome it was so fun Hey there, this is Matt. Thank you for listening. This podcast is now supported by QGradeCoffee.com. And this is not a shop. It's not a coffee blend. This is actually an experience by uh, my friend Kevin. And uh, you'll hear all about this in an upcoming episode. I went through an extensive flavor profile. And what that is 
is a questionnaire and a tasting of fruits and vegetables and even several kinds of chocolate, which I loved, to help me determine the flavor, the roast, even the region of coffee that suits the things that I like to eat and the flavors that I enjoy. And I'm so excited that uh, I know how to make a great and a legitimately great cup of coffee using Q-grade coffee's techniques. And it's not pretentious. It's not snobby. There's coffee education and there's techniques to it. And even if you have just a single cup of coffee in the morning, what you'll learn and experience is uh, eye-opening. And it's just a fun experience. So if you like cheeses and wines and beers, you have to go through this with coffee. And it's more than just a tasting. It literally gives you the flavors and the roast that you enjoy. And I I can't say it enough. You won't know what you've been missing until you go through a Q-grade coffee profiling. So check them out at qgradecoffee.com. Tech episodes of this podcast are now supported by furos.io. That is F-U-R-O-S dot I-O. Furos is a Denver cloud consulting firm, and chances are if there's a big building in downtown Denver with their logo on the outside of it, Furos has got people in there doing some very interesting work that has an impact on those businesses. They focus on AWS, cloud consulting, and their mantra is simple. Hire the best people they can pay them really well, and let them work on challenging, interesting projects that have impacts on the business. So if you are struggling with the cloud, and I know that's a really overused word in the tech space, and projects aren't getting done, and you need some help, look them up, furos.io, that is F-U-R-O-S dot I-O.